Thanks so much for joining us for the New Life Brisbane podcast. New Life Church is one family, many churches, and we exist to simply see more people more like Jesus by planning and leading thriving local churches. You've joined us as we explore what is darkness to light. Easter is a time of renewal and rebirth where we reflect on the teachings of Jesus and the ultimate act of love that he showed us on the cross. Through his resurrection, we are given the gift of eternal life and the promise of forgiveness. We pray this message brings hope, redemption, and faith. First day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took their spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They saw that the stone was rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wandering, wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. The son of man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back to the tomb, they told all the things to the 11 and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Mary, the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, ran up to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away wondering to himself what had happened. Now on that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked, they discussed these things uh, with each other. Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. And Jesus said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophet has spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter into glory? In the beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning themselves. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if they were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening, evening, and the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. Then they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us upon the road in this, and opened the scriptures to us? Then they returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven, and with them assembled together, saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then two told what had happened on the way, and how Jesus, recognized by, how Jesus was recognized by them when he had broke the bread. This is the word of the Lord. I reckon that's the longest scripture reading we've had at New Life Brisbane in a while, so Amanda, well done. We didn't tell you that, did we, when you first signed up for this role? Thank you so much. Friends, thank you so much for being here this afternoon. If we've not met, my name is Alex. 
and I have the privilege of serving as one of the pastors here at New Life Brisbane. And our hope is that we'd see more people more like Jesus. And if that interests you, gets you pumped about life, then man, you're going to love it here. And you're going to taste something of the divine life of God that he'd have for each of you to experience, particularly on this day. It's Resurrection Sunday. How do we feel? How good. Resurrection Sunday. Uh, This week has made me, particularly this passage, has made me think about the power of words to change worlds. You know what I mean when I say that? The power of words to change worlds. Not just for me, but for a whole host of people. I'll give you an example. Uh, You ask someone the question of marriage, and they say in two short, pithy words, I do, or I will. And all of a sudden, your whole world has changed because of the profundity of the power of those words that they've shared. It doesn't need to be a lot of words that could change worlds. It can just be a few short things. It could be good news, like a marriage. It could be actually bad news, like maybe a family member. And people in this room would have experienced this themselves. Maybe a family member comes home from the doctor and they've been sick for a while. And they say as they walk in the room, it's terminal. And all of a sudden, your world changes power of words to change worlds. And all in just one moment, everything's shifted and things have changed. It goes from good to bad. There's other examples like sort of quite silly, like closing down sale on now, get your credit card out, let's go. Or you see a post come through on your algorithm through Facebook and it tells you that Ted Lasso season three says something like March 13th, dropping season three. Your whole world changes, right? whole world changes. And included in this little example is just the pure notion that words are powerful and they can change worlds. And today, Resurrection Sunday, we get to look at seven words that didn't just change the world for the first witnesses, women we heard of in this scripture reading. Change the world for everyone. And indeed, change the world for me. No seven words of this. He is not here. He is risen. It's good to be in church on Resurrection Sunday, hey? Now, I don't know what these words have meant to you in your life, but I didn't always read them as good news. I actually wasn't interested in them when I was growing up. When I was 15 years old, I was on a camp. It was called Guga. If anyone been educated by Lutheran Education Queensland here? Wonderful. Yep, a couple of people. Um, And I was on this camp, and it was a month long. You had no correspondence with the outside world except via letter. I don't know if they do this these days. The risk assessment would be off the charts. (laughs) So we're on this camp, and you cook all your own meals. You've got no outside correspondence with the world. But this camp took place over Easter weekend. And I wasn't a Christian, had no faith background, and I thought Christianity was for deluded people, people who just like had this psychological crutch and had this like projected this divine want onto this being. And I just thought Christianity was silly. And on Easter Sunday, they took us up, they woke us up at 3.30 a.m. to go and watch the sunrise on the side of the hill. So this day, like 13, 14, 15 years ago, on the side of this hill, and as the sun was to rise, we were to say across to one another, he's risen, and in response, he's risen indeed. And it rained that day. But we started sharing these words with one another And I was this angsty teenage kid, but as these words just reverberated across the mountainside, looking for the sun to appear on the horizon, I remember just feeling within me, maybe there's some truth to this. Maybe this could be real. And maybe this could be good for me. So I want to invite us into that experience just as we kick off Resurrection Sunday. We've been standing already. Can I invite us to stand to our feet? And I'm going to say these words. He is risen. And I'm going to invite you 
to say in response, he's risen indeed. We might do it a few times, and then what I'd love to do is invite you out of the pew that you're sitting in and actually to participate in saying this to one another as we gather as God's people. And some of you are thinking, Alex, why do you keep bringing back the old school stuff into church? I'm just like, man, you're gonna remember this. This is gonna change your life. So you ready, friends? We good for this? Yeah? Yeah? He is risen. He is risen indeed. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Friends, on this Easter Sunday, he is risen. He is risen indeed. Now, on a scale of one to awkward, get out of your pew. <laughs> Go meet a stranger. And I'd say try and bank up at least two people you've not met and declare to them the good news this Easter Sunday. Go for it. We've got a bit of time. Wonderful. Five more seconds. Let's bring that in. (laughs) Wonderful, friends. Thank you. Well done, everyone. The beauty about the conversations you've just started is that you can continue them around the baptism pool later. Feel free to find your seat. I've just watched what took place, and what took place just then was the transition between individuals who've come to hear a message and actually the resurrected people of God celebrating together. Am I right? You feel that? It's Resurrection Sunday. How good is it to be in church on Resurrection Sunday? Let's share the resurrection together. I love what C.S. Lewis said. He thought you'd get away with a sermon on Resurrection Sunday with a quote without Lewis, but here he is. He says, Christianity, if true is of ultimate importance. If false is of no importance, the only thing it cannot be is of moderate importance. And the resurrection gives us the why behind that statement, the why behind that quote. And I wanna share with us three things this afternoon that I think we get from the resurrection of Jesus. And I think comes through in this passage that we've just had read to us and into our lives. So three things, and I've articulated them as questions, and each point will give us the answer, but number one, why we believe it. Number two, what it would give you. And number three, how it compels us. Why we'd believe it, what it would give you, and how it compels us. So number one, why we'd believe it. And the short answer is this. It's because it claims to be true. It doesn't claim to be narrative or fiction or myth. Now, some of you have been here at New Life long enough to know that this could be a bit of a hobby horse of mine, so I'll try and spare a lot of details, but I need to zoom in on this on Resurrection Sunday because the hope we have from Jesus rising from the dead give us the hope we need for the future we face. And so those two things together in this moment actually can be power for the Christian life. So why we believe it? Because it claims to be true. When historians look at ancient texts, which this gospel reading we've just had is an ancient text, we believe God's inspired it, but also humans wrote it. Don't ask me how, we relegate that to mystery, and I'm fine with it. But here's the beauty of it. 
It's an ancient text written by humans to other humans. And when historians look at ancient texts, one of the things they use to try and verify whether it's reliable is something called the criterion of embarrassment. Why don't you say that to your neighbor? Criterion of embarrassment. Now, who can spell that? No, it doesn't matter. But the criterion of embarrassment, it holds this, that a historical document is more probably reliable if those who write it would be embarrassed by its contents. Why? Because you've heard the phrase, history belongs to the winners, or something like that. And the idea behind that is that those who write history write it to make themselves look good, and in making themselves look good, sort of void them from embarrassment. But you go to this text, and in ancient Jewish culture, it's embarrassing. Now, it's not embarrassing for us, but it's embarrassing for them. Why? Well, in ancient Jewish culture, the testimony of women would not be held up in court. It's actually a quote from a guy behind me, uh, two slides ahead, uh, Josephus, an ancient historian, born 37 AD, died 100 AD, and he was writing about the admission of particular testimonies in court. And he was asking the question, what's reliable? And he said this, actually, don't admit a woman's testimony in court. Now, go back to our passage. What do we find are the first people with, therefore, the first testimony of the news that our God's not dead, he's risen? Verse 1, chapter 24, and verse 10. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they prepared and went to the tomb. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them. So what's the point? The point is that if you were going to make up a story you wanted people in your culture to believe, you'd say it was men, if you were going to make it up. And they don't. Which means this for historians reading this text. Maybe they were just recording what they believed to be history. And if they're just recording what they believe to be history, then this is making a claim about what happened that we need to wrestle with. That in other words, it's claiming to be true. And it could indeed be true. So here's the point I want to make. When you think about Christianity, whether you're a Christian or you're not, do you think you need to check your brain out at the door of the church that you come to hear the story of Jesus? And if the answer to that question is yes, then you could, if you're a Christian, believe these things for the wrong reasons. And if you're not a Christian, you could be withholding yourself from the best news ever because you need to just get the sort of intellectual dragons in check, but you haven't, right? Let me put it this way. A lot of people will believe in modern culture what they believe because they think it might be relevant or practical for their life. So they'll say, hey, have you tried this? It might be yoga, it might be meditation. They'll say, it really works, it's really good. Or they'll say, hey, have you tried this new particular religious fad? And I won't name names because it would be unhelpful. But you know, just think of the things that our friends on the street level would say to us as Christians, or even you might say if you find yourself here on Sunday. Have you tried this? It feels really powerful and relevant for my life. And the question begged is this, well, is it true? But in modern culture, that's sort of devalued a bit. But here's what that means. If you follow something that's relevant or practical but not true, then when the going gets tough, it'll no longer be relevant or practical. And because you've settled for what's relevant rather than what's true, then over time, it won't even be relevant. But if you settle for what's true, it'll always be relevant. Which is why the resurrection of Jesus actually still has power 2,000 years later to put joy on the face of Christians peace in our hearts 
and actually change worlds, right? And so here's the claim. It could be true. And we're all the more led to believe it could be because it would have been very embarrassing for them to make up this story. It's making a claim. And here's the question for this first point. Have you examined the Christian story? Have you looked at its truth? Why we'd believe it? Well, it could be true. Number two, what it would give you. And the short answer for this is hope. Now, hope, hope is the answer to the question, how will I know it'll be okay? You feel that? And I think actually all of us in the past few years have asked that question. Some of us have asked it because of COVID, but actually most of us have just asked it because we're human. And we've lived a normal portion of time on this very mundane earth, and we've been like, how do I know everything in the ultimate sense is going to be okay with the world? And then let me get really practical with it. Maybe you've received a particular diagnosis and you're like, how will I know it's going to be okay? Maybe there's a loved one in your world who themselves have received a particular diagnosis and you're like, I just don't know what's going to happen to them and I don't know what that's going to mean for me. How do I know it's going to be okay? Maybe you've lost your job recently and you're thinking, man, how am I going to make ends meet? And then you start to catastrophize. So you take one thought, you add to that thought another thought and just like a kite, you let it out. And the more you let it out, the more it wavers in the wind, the more anxiety you feel and the more catastrophic it becomes. How do I know it's going to be okay? Now, there's two answers that have come up in the history, at least the way I read it, in answer to this question, uh, and two ways you can live your life. You can live your life optimistically or hopeful. There'll be a little table on the screen behind me. How good's a table? Man, Resurrection Sunday, no, nothing short of a table. But you can live your life optimistically or hope, with hope. Now, optimism, let me give you some little jokes about optimism. I was looking this up this week and I had a little giggle to myself. You ready for this one, friends? All right, here's a, little, here's a little spice. Both optimists and pessimists contribute to society. I don't know if you know this. The optimist says, well, the optimist invents the plane. The pessimist invents the parachute. Three people got that joke. Don't worry, there's more. I'll give you a little bit more. The optimist said to the pessimist, I think this is the best of all possible worlds. And the pessimist said, I'm really afraid you might be right. Three people walk down a train line, an optimist, a pessimist, and a realist. The pessimist says, man, this tunnel's dark. The optimist says, oh, there's a light down the end of the tunnel, don't worry. The realist says, that's a freight train, see you later. <laughs> you can be optimistic about life in the face of your worries, or you can be hopeful. Now, what's the difference? An optimist they draw their positivity based on an outcome. They're positive because they want a certain outcome. So they live their lives orbiting around a certain circumstance. If the circumstance is good, you're optimistic. If not, pessimistic. The source of your comfort, it's very human. Human ingenuity, progress, technology, AI, which like all the philanthropists in the world right now are just saying, hey, let's put a halt on this stuff because we don't know what it could become. But you put your source of comfort in life, in the face of pain and suffering and even death in human means. And it leads to one of two things, either absolute despair or delusion. You're despairing because you think, oh man, I was optimistic this would happen, it's now no longer happened, I'm stuffed. Or you're delusional because you think it's going to happen, it doesn't happen, but you keep thinking it will happen, and so you become completely irrelevant to all those friends in your life that are going through suffering. Despair or delusion. Do you want to be optimistic or hopeful? To be hopeful is to have confidence despite the circumstance. Doesn't that sound nice? 
sounds way better, sounds robust. The source of your comfort is God who raised Jesus, so not yourself, not human ingenuity, but God who raised Jesus from the dead. Very different source of comfort. And the ultimate ends are either confidence and or realism. In other words, you've just got this deep-seated peace in the face of suffering. Doesn't mean suffering doesn't come, but you've got a peace that sits within you that nothing outside of you can take away. You're confident God will do what he said he would do. But you've also got this realism that you can call a spade a spade and say to your friend who's going through some struggling, yeah, that sucks. That really sucks. And our text gives us this hope. Let me read it for us. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, this is verse one, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. Now pause there for a moment. What are they doing? Actually, they're in a bit of despair because they think the guy in whom they banked all their chips is dead. Not the king promised. Not the Messiah longed for. But he's dead. And the spices they carry, they're to embalm him, to prepare him properly for burial. They're despairing. But then verse 5, in their fright, the women bowed down after they'd seen the man, that is, with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised Again, and here's what you get. You get a despairing group of women who approach the tomb thinking in their mind, a Jewish imagination, that God promised one day he would raise all the righteous people from the dead. And they go there thinking this is the Messiah through whom that promised end would come, but he's dead, and so our hopes are dead with him. And they go to the the tomb, they discover an empty tomb, unfolded linen, and then they hear about a resurrection, and they think, goodness me, what God promised to do at the end of time has now come true in this one man. Maybe God is on the move again. Hope goes up, despair goes down. They find themselves with confidence and realism in the face of the resurrected Messiah. And here's the bottom line for this second point. What God has done in Jesus is his down payment for what he will do for the world. That's what Resurrection Sunday means. Sure, it's the death of death. Like for every individual who believes, you can have resurrection life in Jesus that starts now and overflows into eternity. But also, that's a personal promise, but also it's got cosmic hope because the promise is, it was Revelation 21 talks about that God will come back and he will restore everything. And all the tears we've wept in this life, he will personally wipe away as he bends down in a fatherly gentleness and just takes those tears away. He will renew this world. What he did in Jesus, he'll do again for the cosmos. And the question Resurrection Sunday begs is, will you get on board with this hope? Will you get on board with this hope? Because this hope is way better than optimism. In 2004, on the 26th of December at 7.58 a.m. local time, a major earthquake hit off the coast of northern Sumatra, Indonesia. It's called the Boxing Day Tsunami. You remember this? An estimated 230-something thousand people died. It was a 9.2 on the Richter scale. And in the face of such suffering and death, all the theologians, all the philosophers came out and they tried to rationalize it. How could this happen? How could God make this possible? How could this be? There was one theologian, a guy named David Bentley Hart, who wrote an article. And in that article, he penned these words. You'll actually hold that for a second. He made the argument 
that in the face of suffering, the resurrection gives us the kind of realistic hope that allows us to say the most important thing ever, which is this, this just sucks, and this is God's enemy. And then at the same time, to have this deep-seated peace and confidence that this won't be the end of the story. In other words, just to be present with people in their suffering. Now, how can you become that kind of person? You, be you can become that kind of person for another if you have hope that though this day is dim, it won't be the last one on God's calendar. Here's what he said. The Christian faith, it is a faith that has set us free from optimism and taught us hope instead. Do you know hope this Resurrection Sunday? Claims to be true, can give you real hope. And lastly, how it compels us. Let me read from verse 9. It says this, When they came back from the tomb, that is, the women, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. Now let's pause there. Verse 9. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the others. And what are they telling them? They're telling them the basic fact that he is risen. What the angel told to me, I'm now sharing with you. He is risen indeed. And here's the point I want to make from this little part here. Is that the thing that it compelled them to do was share it. That in other words, what you've got here is a historical retelling of the first evangelists known in the Christian faith. Isn't that wonderful? Three women, maybe a handful. It says, and the others, I don't know. I don't know what that means in Jewish garb. It could mean 10, could mean five, I don't know. But a handful of women, let's say, come reporting the resurrection of Jesus. Now just think, if you've got this world-changing, empire-leveling, subversive, inclusive, beautiful truth claim that will absolutely change the world, and you want to get it out to as many people as possible, isn't it a bit risky just to subject the truth of it and the experience of it just to three, maybe a handful of people? Now, forget the fact that they're women just for a moment. The possibility of others experiencing the truth of the resurrection in that historical moment rests on the shoulders of these five people. Now, there's, there's people in the room who are just like, yeah, but God could have. Yeah, God could have. It's fine. He could have. Could have done a bunch of things. But here in this moment, five people, the truth of the Christian story that hinges on the resurrection, the whole of the Christian mission funneled into three people. And here's the point. God risks the declaration of the risen king on the obedience of a handful of people. Right? Now, what if they didn't? Praise God, they did. Because we would not be here today if the kind of obedience they shared in response to the truth of the risen king, they didn't follow through with, with declaration and sharing. And so this Easter, here's what I want to challenge us as a community to do. And I think this is what comes out of the text. It's simply this. If you've met the risen Jesus, you'll, you'll want others to meet him too. Let me go to another gospel, John's gospel. It's the experience of the first disciples in chapter one. And Philip, after experiencing Jesus as the king, now he hasn't gone to the cross and been raised again yet, but he's experienced Jesus as a king in the first chapter of John's gospel, a biography of the life of Jesus. He goes up to his friends and says these words. You'll see it on the screen beside me, behind me. He says, come and see. And I think this is just like a demonstration of an early Christian evangelism strategy. Because what Philip had seen in Jesus, he just invites others to come and see. 
Now, here's what we do as modern Christians. As modern Christians, we hear the imperative for evangelism and we think, goodness me, I haven't done that this week and I feel really guilty about it. I'm really scared about what this means for me. But actually, the witness and experience of the early Christians was this. I've seen something amazing. I want you to see it too. Which is why I think the imperative for evangelism, it's not a guilt trip, it's a reality check. Because it begs this question, have you met the risen Jesus? Have you met him? 15 years ago, I met him for the first time. It wasn't a one-off thing, as if like, sorry, it wasn't, a, it wasn't like a spur of the moment thing where my whole life was just backflip in a second. It was a journey for me. But man, I'm glad that God started me on that journey, which was catalyzed, I think, in me declaring a truth my heart didn't know on a mountainside in the rain. Now to finding myself full-time pastoring in such a way that frees me up to just be like, hey, have you seen this guy? His name is Jesus. He'll give you hope. He may indeed be true. Have you checked him out? This is what they did. They shared. And I think Easter time is a reality check for us to share. And so here's the question. Who in your world are you inviting to come and see what you've seen? In just a few weeks, we've got Alpha coming up. And I think the risk of doing an intentional ministry program at church is that we as a church would see that as something that someone else at church does. You feel this? It's like, oh, the Alpha Core team will take care of that. And how wonderful is it that we've got volunteer leaders that would completely supercharge Alpha and where it's going and what it's doing? But I would just say Alpha is what we as a church do. It's not what leadership does. It's not what a few select individuals who've been touched particularly by Alpha. It's like what we do. It's a new life thing. And the reason is not because Alpha is magical. It's just because it's a really helpful vehicle in a post-Christian world for people to open up questions which lead them to Jesus. And so here's, here's my invitation for us as a church. Even maybe you in the pew is like, who are you inviting to come and see? Because the question is begged, have you seen? We can't invite people to come and see unless we ourselves have tasted and seen. And so can I invite you to stand just as we finish and land a bit of the plane here on Resurrection Sunday? One of the passages that I am so glad was read by Amanda just before is towards the back end of chapter 24, the disciples turned to one another. They started with despair. They now met the risen king, and he unfolded to them the scriptures, and they turned to one another in verse 32, and they say, were not our hearts burning? Now, in our style of church, one of the things we really value is naming that if there's a time in your life where you feel your heart burning, we want to name that as actually God interacting with you. And we get this from a guy named John Wesley. John Wesley was a pastor in the Anglican tradition, and his question that he just ruminated on, even while he was in ministry, like a professional Christian guy, the thing that he ruminated on was like, hey, how do I know that I actually know God? You know, like, how can I be sure? And he ended up going on a mission trip, a preaching tour in the new colonies in America. Totally bombed. No one met Jesus. He felt like an absolute failure. So he came back. And as he came back, he found himself on a ship with a tradition of people called the Moravians, the Hernhutters. And these guys knew how to pray. And these guys knew how to get vulnerable with God, not just intellectually, but emotionally, right? In the heart of the city, intellectual place, emotionally get vulnerable with God. And so he, when he, was, when he met with them, he had this question on his mind, how can I experience what they've experienced of God? And that question pervaded in his life. Later, he finds himself in a, uh, a ministry setting, in a service in London. Uh, St. Aldersgate, I think, is the place. And someone was reading, get this, a commentary from Martin Luther from the 16th century 
introducing the New Testament. So like on a scale of one to ecstatic, probably like a two out of 10, right? (laughs) And he sits there and he hears these words written by this old guy. And he says, for the first time, I experienced the love of God. And the words you might've heard before he said this, he says, my heart was strangely warmed. And as the New Testament reveals and John Wesley's testimony confirms, when the Holy Spirit comes near, something happens in our heart. Now for you, that might be warmth. For you, it might be nervousness because there's something happening within you that you've never felt before. But on this Resurrection Sunday, I want to believe that there's some of us in this room who feel something. And as I've shared about what could be true, what offers us hope, and what we're invited to share about it, I wonder if there's people in the room that actually want to respond to that invitation for the very first time, to receive the hope of Jesus, to affirm the truth of the resurrection, and to step in relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And so can I invite us just to close our eyes and bow our heads? We do this every week at church because we're passionate about seeing more people more like Jesus, starting the conversation with him now that will echo into eternity. And so if if as I've been speaking, you find yourself saying, yeah, I think this could be true and I want to step into a relationship with God, can I just invite you just to raise your hand where you are right now? I'll leave a bit of space open for this. Maybe you're in the room this afternoon and you've actually been a Christian before and you find yourself at church randomly because you're just going to give it one last crack. Maybe you've walked away from faith, your heart is cold and tired. And you sit here and you think, actually, I think God might be speaking to me for the first time again in a while. And I want to repent and come back into a fresh relationship with Jesus. If that's you, can I invite you to raise your hand just where you are? Wonderful. Is there anyone else that would like to declare this with their hand? Wonderful. What we're going to do we're going to take a moment to pray a simple prayer we pray every single week, which begins with gratitude, moves into repentance, and finishes with an ask. And it's God, sorry, thank you, and please. And we'll do this as a church family. And so rather than one individual saying one thing, we're going to all in one voice share out loud. And so if you're a Christian in the room, you call New Life Home, can I invite you just to encourage our friends just to speak alongside me and speak alongside them. So let's pray together. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his death on my behalf. Thank you for his resurrection. Sorry, we're so fickle at remembering Jesus sometimes. but you're so good at chasing us down. Father, help me worship you right now with my whole heart. We give you glory on this Resurrection Sunday.
In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, friends, we are going to worship the King together. And just like the ecstasy of those early witnesses to the tomb, I would say, goodness me, we've got baptisms coming up in about 20 minutes. There is much to celebrate. So let's celebrate. Thanks again for listening to the New Life Podcast. If that stirred something within you or you would like prayer, you can head to church.nu forward slash prayer or contact us through our Instagram or Facebook page.